That's right. It is once again time for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, your host and your referee for this bout of Wrestling with Theology. We are in the confessional corner this week, and we're looking at Augsburg Confession, Article 27, the next to last article in this great confession of the faith, dealing with monastic vows. The question of monastic vows is one of those that seems to be outdated and antiquated. Very few people seek to join a monastery or convent these days. Even though the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that the monastic life is better than a secular life, very few seek to take on the vows of monks and nuns anymore. But we'll talk more about that when we look at the Sacrament of Holy Orders on Common Ground in a few months. But the question about the place of monasteries and convents was very important to the Reformers. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Katharina von Bora Luther was a Benedictine nun. Many of the other Reformers had been monks or nuns before joining the Reformation. What might be surprising to a 21st century Lutheran reader of the Augsburg Confession is that Melanchthon doesn't dismiss monasteries and convents out of hand. Might there still be a place for them in our lives? Especially as we consider what has happened to us all in this shelter-at-home state that we are in through federal and state governments. The practicalities of the monastic life are a bit more understandable now. But what about the spiritual aspect of it? Could that be a good thing? Could monasteries be a good thing nowadays? Let's look at paragraphs 1 through 4. It will be easier to understand what we teach about monastic vows by considering the state of the monasteries and how many things were done every day contrary to canon law. In Augustine's time, they were free associations. Later, when discipline was corrupted, vows were added for the purpose of restoring discipline, as in a carefully planned prison. Gradually, many other regulations were added beside vows. These binding rules were laid upon many before the lawful age, contrary to canon law. When the first monasteries were established, and all the way through Augustine's time, they were free associations. What is meant by that? Membership was voluntary. There wasn't necessarily separate groups for men and women. They were able to join and leave without any problems. However, discipline was corrupted in these associations. In order to restore discipline, the leaders of these groups began to impose vows upon the members. Some of the more popular vows were celibacy, poverty, and silence. These were brought into the groups to help keep discipline in the group, but they made the group a carefully planned prison. Once the vows were enforced, the free association was no longer free. As time went on, through the Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages, more and more regulations and vows were piled on top of the groups. Some were made in order to weed out the applicants for the order. Some were made to guide advancement through the ranks of the order. But again, they were simply piled on because those in charge wanted to maintain their position and power. The main charge against the Roman Church was that they allowed all this to happen to people before the lawful age. The bulk of the article is based on this. While there were some adults, like Luther, who willingly joined the monastery or the convent, 
most were forced to join by parents while they were still small children. Katharina von Bora was sent to the convent in Brenna at age five. She took these vows and accepted the regulations without any knowledge of what she was promising. That brings us to the next section, paragraphs 5 through 12. Many entered monastic life through ignorance. They were not able to judge their own strength, though they were old enough. They were trapped and compelled to remain, even though some could have been freed by the kind provision of canon law. This was more the case in convents of women than of monks, although more consideration should have been shown the weaker sex. This rigor displeased many people before this time, who saw that young men and women were thrown into convents for a living. They saw that unfortunate results came of this procedure, how it created scandals, and what snares were cast upon consciences. They were sad that the authority of canon law in so great a matter was utterly set aside and despised. In addition to all these evil things, a view of vows was added that displeased even the most considerate monks. They taught that monastic vows were equal to baptism. They taught that a monastic life merited forgiveness of sins and justification before God. Yes, they even added that the monastic life not only merited righteousness before God, but even greater merit, since it was said that the monastic life not only kept God's basic law, but also the so-called evangelical councils. Great problems and scandals were created when you mixed those who entered these societies ignorantly, the strict vows, and sinful human nature. So many scandals can and do happen. The worst problem with the evolution of monastic vows was their eventual equality with baptism. Eventually, it was taught that being a monk or nun was on par with being baptized. Of course, this would come into the teaching that the spiritual life of the monks and nuns were better and more holy than secular lives. That monks and nuns obtained an overflow of merits because of their observance of their vows and regulations, which were above God's basic law and into the evangelical councils. Melanchthon continues in paragraph 13 and 14. So they made people believe that the profession of monasticism was far better than baptism, and that the monastic life was more meritorious than that of rulers, pastors, and others who serve in their calling according to God's commands without any man-made services. None of these things can be denied. This is all found in their own books about monasticism. The promotion of the monastic community simply served to make the lay people more lax in their secular work and more uncertain about their eternal destiny. Obviously, the monks and nuns were going to go to heaven with little or no time in purgatory. The lay people, on the other hand, would have to be purged for quite some time. For most of them, how they lived didn't matter because punishment would come after their death. They had a life to live, and they lived it with a bit of license. It happened in the monasteries, too, as we see in paragraphs 15 to 17. How did all this come about in monasteries? At one time, they were schools of theology and other branches of learning, producing pastors and bishops for the benefit of the church. Now, it is another thing. It is needless to go over what everyone knows. Before, they came together for the sake of learning. Now they claim that monasticism is a lifestyle instituted to merit grace and righteousness. They even preach that it is a state of perfection. They put monasticism far above all other kinds of life ordained by God. 
We have mentioned all these things without hateful exaggeration so that our teacher's doctrine on monasticism may be better understood. At one time, the monasteries were places for men to freely wrestle with theology. They could have their understanding of God and his plan of salvation and his will expanded. They were once beneficial for the preparation of parish pastors and bishops. Once it became more about the lifestyle instead of the learning, everything became worse. However, Melanchthon doesn't go much further into that because it is needless to go over what everyone knows. Instead, Melanchthon goes into where the teachings diverge from canon law at the time of the Reformation. Paragraphs 18 to 21. First, concerning monks who marry, our teachers say that it is lawful for anyone who is not suited for the single life to enter into marriage. Monastic vows cannot destroy what God has commanded and ordained. God's commandment is this. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. 1 Corinthians 7.2 It is not just a command given by God. God has created an ordained marriage for those who are not given an exception to natural order by God's special work. This is what is taught according to the text in Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, those who obey this command and ordinance of God do not sin. The vow of celibacy is the most well-known monastic vow. It is still in force for those seeking the Roman Catholic spiritual life, whether as priests or as monks and nuns. The actual beginning of this required vow cannot be completely pinned down, but it is attested to being very ancient. The biggest problem with the mandatory vow of celibacy is that not everyone, in fact, very few people, are able to live in this manner. Certainly, God has gifted some people with the spiritual gift of continence, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 9. The Roman Catholics will take their cue from St. Paul as he says later in this chapter, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better, chapter 7, verse 38. But this doesn't mean that every single person is spiritually better than a married person by default. Your spiritual standing before God doesn't hinge on your marital status. After all, what does God say on the sixth day of creation? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18, as Melanchthon quotes. God created male and female to be in relationship with each other. He instituted marriage on the very day that he created Adam and Eve. Why? It is not good that man should be alone. Melanchthon also points to St. Paul for validation of marriage for even those who had taken vows of celibacy. 1 Corinthians 7 is one of those passages that could be picked apart to make the argument for either side of this debate. He also could have gone to 1 Timothy 4, where Paul warns Timothy about those who will follow deceitful spirits and teachings of demons who forbid marriage. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1-5 through God has created and ordained marriage for those who are not given an exception to natural order by God's special who are we to try to cancel God's command and ordinance? He goes on in paragraphs 22 and 23. 
What objection can be raised to this? Let people praise the obligation of a monastic vow as much as they want, but they will never be able to destroy God's commandment by means of a monastic vow. Canon law teaches that superiors can make exceptions to monastic vows. How much less are such monastic vows in force that are contrary to God's commands? What has more weight, a divine command or a man-made ordinance? What should you put more faith in? Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. You cannot run to your own ideas for peace of conscience. You can only find that peace in God's word. It doesn't matter how much fanfare the man-made ordinance is given. It still cannot overthrow God's command. Melanchthon continues on in paragraphs 24 through 26. If, in fact, an obligation to a monastic vow could never be changed for any reason, the Roman popes could never have granted exceptions to the vows. For it is not lawful for someone to make an exception to what is truly from God. The Roman pontiffs have wisely judged that mercy is to be observed in these monastic obligations. That is why we read that many times they have made special arrangements and exceptions with monastic vows. The case of the king of Aragon, who was called back from the monastery, is well known, and there are also examples in our own times. The other great problem with monastic vows was they were supposedly irrevocable. However, popes allowed exceptions regularly. There have been stories throughout the centuries of the scandalous reality of life in monasteries and convents, even the Vatican itself. Why are these stories told? Because God did not wire most people to live a solitary life. He wired us to live in relationships. To keep these stories under wraps, the popes and other officials had to be generous in the mercy given in these exceptions to the irrevocable vows. So that's the first of Melanchthon's three arguments against monastic vows as they were in the time of the Reformation. Now we pick up in paragraph 27 with the second one. In the second place, why do our adversaries exaggerate the obligation or effect of a vow when, at the same time, they do not have anything to say about the nature of the vow itself? A vow should be something that is possible. It should be a decision that is made freely and after careful deliberation. We all know how possible perpetual chastity actually is in reality, and just how few people actually do take this vow freely and deliberately. Young women and men, before they are able to make their own decision about this, are persuaded and sometimes even forced to take the vow of chastity. Therefore, it is not fair to insist so rigorously on the obligation. Everyone knows that taking a vow that is not made freely and deliberately is against the very nature of a true vow. What value does a vow have if the person making it knows that he or she cannot keep it? It's absolutely worthless. We see this over and over again in the ability that people have to keep even the simple wedding vows, especially those who married under duress or less than desirable circumstances. When someone is already looking for a way out before they even make the vow, what good is the vow? Of course, this goes back to the beginning of this article, where many who take the vows aren't old enough to understand what they're promising. If you tell a child between the ages of 5 and 11 to promise never to marry a person of the opposite gender, they'll readily agree. 
because their understanding is firmly planted in the idea that the other gender has cooties. What happens when that same child enters puberty? Their mindset shifts to desiring what God has designed. A young woman or man under a vow cannot ask to be removed from the vow because a promise is a promise. However, we see that canon law did have some latitude in this instance. We see in paragraphs 31 through 33. Most canonical laws overturn vows made before the age of 15. Before that age, a person does not seem able to make a wise judgment and to decide to make a lifelong commitment like this. There is another canon law that adds even more years to this limit, showing that the vow of chastity should not be made before the age of 18. So which of these two canon laws should we follow? Most people leaving the monastery have a valid excuse since they took their vows before they were 15 or 18. Here, canon law seems to have some sort of age of reason. It was likely set at 15 for philosophical reasons. At this point, there's been enough education and life experience for children to begin to understand the world around them and the consequences of their actions. It's not much different than Jewish bar and bat mitzvahs. These happen around age 13. After the ceremony, they are considered adults by the Jewish community. Although the law had the provision that all vows could be dissolved if they were made before this age, how many people actually would ask for dissolution? After all, they've been told for years how they would be considered outcast for abandoning their vows. Becoming an outcast in a society where both the social and the religious realms were run by the same people was likely to be considered a living hell on earth. Most people who left the monasteries and convents in the Reformation had a valid excuse. Many made their vow of celibacy well before age 18. Those who left the cloister to join the Those who left the cloister to join the Reformation should have been able to do it with a clean conscience. But their conscience had been seared by the training they had received. Their struggles were even greater if they wanted to marry. And we see issues that happen as we get to the third of Melanchthon's problems in paragraphs 34 and 35. Finally, even though it might be possible to condemn a person who breaks a vow, it does not follow that it is right to dissolve such a person's marriage. Augustine denies that they ought to be dissolved. Augustine's authority should not be taken lightly, even though some wish to do so today. Unfortunately, when the vow of celibacy was enforced on the clergy, existing marriages were dissolved. Divorces were demanded, or else the priest could face death, either his own or his family's death. What a great gospel message being delivered by the Roman hierarchy. Augustine taught against the dissolution of these marriages because it went against Jesus' direct words. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery. Matthew 19.9 Many will put the force of this passage on the phrase, I omitted, and marries another. However, Jesus talks about divorce as being completely against God's design, order, and command from the beginning. Anyone who entered into the monastery or the convent as a married person should have remained married and not been forced to divorce. We can go back to 1 Corinthians 7 for support on this. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. 
each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. 1 Corinthians 7, 17-20 This should be, and truly is, grounds enough for people to leave their vows and live as God has called them. However, the Reformers go a different direction for the last half of this article. They ask, what is righteousness? Especially since the monastic vows were supposed to merit righteousness in the first place. So what is it that we mean when we talk about righteousness? We look at paragraphs 36 and 37. Although it appears that God's command about marriage delivers many from their vows, our teachers introduce another argument about vows to show that they are void. Every service of God, established and chosen by people to merit justification and grace, without God's commandment, is wicked. For Christ says in Matthew 15:9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul teaches everywhere that righteousness is not to be sought in self-chosen practices and acts of worship devised by people. Righteousness comes by faith to those who believe that they are received by God into grace for Christ's sake. Most monastic vows were truly commandments of men that the church tried to set up as divine doctrines. Because they had enslaved the minds of the lay people to believe that they could not question the church, they allowed these things to be set up even when their own priest might read a passage of scripture that said the exact opposite. They would simply be told that their ears were not in tune with what God was really saying. This was especially clear when people would ask about righteousness. Throughout the confessions, the lack of proper teaching on righteousness is rebuked over and over again. Here, Melanchthon spells it out very clearly. Paul teaches everywhere that righteousness is not to be sought in self-chosen practices and acts of worship devised by people. Righteousness comes by faith to those who believe that they are received by God into grace for Christ's sake. There is no other righteousness, not even in the monastic life. This was the cornerstone, capstone problem of the monastic vows, is they were enshrined around a lifestyle that was considered to be more blessed by God, even though God had very little, if anything, to do with it. We continue on into paragraphs 38 through 43. It is clear for all to see that the monks have taught that services made up by people make satisfaction for sins and merit grace and justification. What else is this than detracting from Christ's glory and hiding and denying the righteousness that comes through faith? Therefore, it follows that monastic vows, which had been widely taken, are wicked services of God and consequently are void. For a wicked vow taken against God's commandment is not valid. For as the canon says, no vow ought to bind people to wickedness. Paul says, you are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Galatians 5.4 Therefore, anyone wanting to be justified by his vows makes Christ useless and falls from grace. Anyone who tries to connect justification to monastic vows bases his justification on his own works, which properly belong to Christ's glory. Anything you do to merit grace and salvation shows that Jesus didn't do enough with his once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
any amount of human cooperation in the equation of salvation voids the whole thing. Let me say this once and for all. You have nothing to do with your salvation. And we see this picked up in paragraphs 44 through 48. It cannot be denied that the monks have taught that they were justified and merited forgiveness of sins by means of their vows and observances. Indeed, they even invented greater absurdities, saying that they could give others a share in their works. If anyone wanted to make more of this point, to make our opponents look even worse, even more things could be mentioned, things that even the monks are ashamed of now. But on top of all this, the monks persuaded people that the services that they invented were a state of Christian perfection. What else is this other than assigning our justification to works? It is no light offense in the church to set before the people a service invented by people without God's commandment, and then to teach them that such service justifies. For the righteousness of faith, which ought to be the highest teaching in the church, is hidden when these wonderful and angelic forms of worship, with their show of poverty, humility, and celibacy, are put in front of people. People want to believe that what they are doing is right. Eventually, they will tell the lie so many times that they begin to believe it themselves. This happened with the monks in their state of Christian perfection. This cannot be allowed in the church. No one will reach a state of Christian perfection in this life or ever by themselves. They can only reach this state through Christ. No amount of vehemence in teaching can say otherwise, as we see in paragraphs 49 through 55. God's precepts and God's true service are hidden when people hear that only monks are in a state of perfection. True Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart, to have great faith, and to trust that for Christ's sake we have a God who has been reconciled. It means to ask for and expect from God his help in all things with confident assurance that we are to live according to our calling in life, being diligent in outward good works, serving in our calling. This is where true perfection and true service of God is to be found. It does not consist in celibacy or in begging or in degrading clothes. The people come up with all sorts of harmful opinions based on the false praise of monastic life. They hear celibacy praised without measure and feel guilty about living in marriage. They hear that only beggars are perfect, so they keep their possessions and do business with guilty consciences. They hear that it is an even higher work, a gospel counsel not to seek revenge. So some in private life are not afraid to take revenge, for they hear that it is but a counsel and not a commandment. Others come to the conclusion that a Christian cannot rightfully hold a civil office or be a ruler. Monastic superiority was vehemently taught in the church. Anything that did not apply to monks and nuns was immediately and harshly shamed. Anyone who lived a life outside the cloister was repeatedly put down because they were inferior to the monastics. Can you blame people then for wanting to skip worship when they're always and only told how they aren't good enough for God? The reformers focused on Christ's glory and merit instead of our unworthiness. Although you and I are terribly unworthy of Christ's glory, merit, and forgiveness, he still gives it to us freely by faith in him. This is why the Lutherans were originally called evangelicals. They focused on the gospel and its freedom. 
instead of the law and its bondage. We finish out this article on monastic vows with paragraphs 56 through 62. There are on record examples of men who hid themselves in monasteries because they wanted to forsake marriage and participation in society. They called this fleeing from the world and said that they were seeking a kind of life that would be more pleasing to God. They did not realize that God ought to be served according to the commandments that he himself has given, not in commandments made up by people. Only a life that has God's commandment is good and perfect. It is necessary to teach the people about these things. Before our times, Gerson rebukes the monk's error about perfection. He testifies that in his day it was a new saying that the monastic life was a state of perfection. So many wicked opinions are inherent in monastic vows, that they justify, that they cause Christian perfection, that they make it possible to heed the counsels and commandments, that they are works over and above God's commandments. All these things are false and empty. They make monastic vows null and void. The greatest line out of this section is a repetition of what has been said many times before in this article. Only a life that has God's commandment is good and perfect. And then Melanchthon closes with referencing Jean Gerson. He was one of the prominent theologians of the Council of Constance, which was 1414 to 1418. According to him, the Reformers were dealing with a doctrine and teaching that had been around for probably less than two centuries. He would agree that everything that had been staked on monastic vows was false and empty. They make monastic vows null and void. There is nothing good in what was in the monastic vows. So, going through this entire article, we see that the reformers don't ever come out and say that the monasteries are inherently bad. Just the teaching surrounding the vows and what they do there. If they were to return to their original station of being free associations where people could devote themselves to the study of the scriptures and the church's teachings, they might actually benefit the church. However, there hasn't been a surge on the establishment of Lutheran monasteries and convents. I don't see one coming in the future either. But that doesn't mean we can't be involved in the in-depth study of God's Word, as I hope you see this podcast as one avenue for that. Here we end Augsburg Confession, Article 27. Next month, in the confessional corner, we begin the final article of the Augsburg Confession on the civil government. The whole idea of church and state, which really, as we understand it as 21st century Americans, is a completely different thing than what they had back in the time of the Reformation. So we will have some time on this uh, article over the next few months. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology in this time of quarantine, this time of shelter at home, this time of having very little except for what I and my fellow pastors can give to you so that you may be equipped to wrestle with the theology that comes out of this. Amen.